Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage program, we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today, we want to welcome our guest, Elaine Wells-Harmer. Elaine, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on. Well, thank you for coming on. And Elaine, before we start, would you share a little bit of your background with our listeners so they can get a little familiar with you? Sure. Um, I was born in Argentina. I'm the sixth of seven children. My father worked for Citibank. He was the executive director of Citibank in Brazil, then Argentina, then Uruguay, Paraguay, and Ecuador. So two of my siblings were also born in Argentina, two in Paraguay, one in Ecuador, and one in the States. And so we've lived all over the place. I spent junior high and high school in Argentina, and then we moved up to Salt Lake City when I was about 16. I went to Stanford and majored in English. Then I decided to become a journalist. So I worked for a TV station and also for a newspaper here in Utah. I preferred written journalism and uh, I loved that. But then I decided to go to law school. And my goal had always been to be an international correspondent for Time Magazine. And I thought going to law school might make my resume stand out a little bit more. But then I ended up loving law school and then I practiced law. I specialized in employment litigation, so sexual harassment, wrongful termination, et cetera. And then my husband and I went to Washington, D.C. when he was asked to be chief of staff for a member of Congress, and I became legislative counsel to a senator on the Labor Committee, Slade Gorton from Washington State. Mm -hmm. And then we went back to Utah. I stayed home for, well, kind of at home. I raised four kids in 15 years, not really staying at home, going <laughs> to soccer games and, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. all the things that come oh, with, with having four yep. kids. Yeah. So I was still freelancing, doing some writing and teaching 30 piano students and substituting in the schools and so on. And Oh, I forgot to mention one other thing on my resume. I was lead singer of a rock band wow. when I was in law school. So that was fun. <laughs> we played all over the state. And uh, yeah, that was my one shot at fame. But that was a little aside. Anyway, so we were in California for 10 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, where David ran for Congress and narrowly lost. And then we moved to Utah, where we've been for 10 years. And for the last 10 years, I've been an editor. For about five years, I worked for a production company that partnered with the Department of Defense and did military history. So I was the managing editor. We did commemorations of the Vietnam War, the Korean War, liberation of Kuwait, a lot of other projects. We worked with all five branches of the military and then I went out on my own, and I've been an editor working for myself for the last five years. So there you go. There's my life in a nutshell. Well, Elaine, that is quite the resume. I would like to know how you have been <laughs> able to accomplish all that and still be only 31 years old. Oh, 
you're so nice. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> well, Arch, I'm 57 and I'm feeling every year of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't wasn't asking your age, but 57 in my world. <laughs> I don't mind. You're still you're still a youngster, Elaine. In my world, you're still oh, that's so kind you're, of you. You're, your topic is the Appomattox and the healing and the surrendered Appomattox. And you mentioned to me a couple of minutes ago that you had this great interest in the Civil War. What is the, about the Civil War, before you get in your topic, that just spurs on your interest? You know, it's really a study of the characters of the main participants in the war. I'm so in awe of Abraham Lincoln and his ability to unite such bitter enemies. And, you know, without his leadership, we wouldn't have been able to successfully end that war. And, you know, I look at Grant and Lee and their dignity and their commitment to do the right thing above their egos and their desire for glory and fame. And I just admire those men so deeply. And it's just a fascinating piece of history because you look at what could have happened. There were so many contingencies if this had happened or if that had happened. And if it hadn't been for Lee's decision For example, his last option before surrendering was guerrilla warfare. And he said, no, that's not proper. And he wanted to do the right thing. So you look at so many contingencies and say, well, if that hadn't happened and that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be a country today. And so those are some of the reasons I'm just fascinated with this period. And Elaine, how different would our country's history be today if Abraham Lincoln hadn't been assassinated several days? You know, that's a really good question, because you see what happened with Reconstruction after he was assassinated, and there was still such bitterness. I mean, fortunately, Lee surrendered, and then the other armies surrendered after that. I mean, the war wasn't done, of course, for 16 months after the surrender. It wasn't officially concluded. But with Andrew Johnson, he did not have the wisdom and the compassion of Lincoln. And I really think that the bitter feelings that so many Southerners continue to have afterward, you know, I think Reconstruction would have happened a lot differently if Lincoln had been president then. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite general or several favorite generals from the Civil War? One that you might admire or admiration? You know, I love Ulysses S. Grant. I just think he's such a great man. He comes from... (laughs) Not a very noble background. Um, You know, he came from kind of a blue class working family. And uh, unlike Lee, who was really a a blue blood, but he just kept fighting and doing his duty and rose up through the ranks and just became this fabulous trusted advisor to Lincoln And as a general, he had brilliant strategies. 
And so it's interesting to see the trajectory of his life and how he was really unremarkable growing up. But then he decided he really wanted to be a military commander. And so I think just by strength of character and hard work, he got to where he was. And of course, he made mistakes, but he made so many great decisions. And of course, especially at Appomattox, where he could have been really stingy and spiteful to Lee and kind of lorded over him. Hey, we're winning. You're not. But he was so gracious and such a statesman. And I just admire his character so much. But, you know, of course, he was with the Union, and I consider myself a Northerner in that sense. But I really admire Robert E. Lee, such a gentleman, you know, in the best sense of the word, just uh, dignified, noble. I really believe that, I mean, Lincoln's actions, Grant's actions, and Lee's actions, you know, all of them kind of fit together. And if it hadn't been for one of those uh, acting the way they did and making the decisions they did and rejecting other decisions, we wouldn't have had peace. But, you know, I look at the decision that Lee made at the end, his troops, you just, you look at starting with April 1st, when Grant attacks at Five Forks and then Lee has to abandon Richmond, and then Richmond falls, and so Lee has three options. He can keep fighting Grant, he can surrender, or he can retreat south and join Johnston's army and then strike hard at Sherman's army. He doesn't want to do one or two, so he decides to retreat. And he's so concerned about his men. I mean, his men are starving you know, they really don't have any rations. They have been waiting for rations to come from Richmond, and they haven't. They've reached, uh, you know, by early March, they've reached the nine-month mark of living in a, I think it was like a 37-mile labyrinth of trenches between Richmond and Petersburg. It's just one prolonged siege, and you have Lee's and Grant's armies taking turns beating each other up, and Lee's troops are just exhausted. They're so hungry, they're scrambling between the legs of horses for dung to sift for undigested corn. They're freezing. A lot of them have no shoes, no overcoats, no blankets. They're suffering from scurvy, dysentery, night blindness. And, uh, you know, there's rats, lice, and urine, and feces, and decaying flesh. And Lee is like a father to these boys, really. They're just boys. And they just adore him. And so this is just eating him up that his men are in such terrible conditions and, you know, starving and exhausted. And so proud of them, though, because they're not ready to give up, even though they've just suffered terribly. I mean, some of them are are too weak even to rise and, you know, let alone stand. But they are determined to keep fighting. If their hero, Robert E. Lee, will lead them into battle. I mean, he's like their George Washington. Everyone looks to him for guidance and direction. 
But even though he knows that, you know, these boys are fighting, 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 and it's just unbelievable that they can keep fighting given their conditions, Lee wants them to succeed so badly just for them because they've been fighting so hard for four years. And, you know, he could get all the glory and honor, be this famous general who wins the war, you know, but he looks at his boys and he sees what can happen if he just keeps fighting. And, um, you know, yeah, he's got the option to run away, retreat, or to keep fighting. And he doesn't want to do either. But then he's got an advisor, uh, an officer who suggests a third option. You know, the men can just scatter, take to the woods, uh, evaporate into the hills, become guerrilla fighters. Uh, they would be like rabbits or, you know, partridges in the bushes. And the Union troops couldn't disperse to follow them. So that's the advantage of being a guerrilla fighter. And you know, some of the Southern troops had already done that. They had just dispersed and you've got these small bands of men hunting down random civilians in the Northern homes and they're attacking Union troops when they're eating or they've just finished an exhausting march. I mean, it's terrorism. And Lee is so decent. He's so dignified. He just feels like guerrilla warfare is just unsporting. You know, it's just unseemly. He can handle an honest-to-goodness war where you know who the enemy is and you're fighting each other out in the field. But guerrilla warfare, terrorism, um, he's just not a terrorist. He's not a hater. He calls the Union those people instead of the enemy. So even though guerrilla warfare might be successful and ultimately lead to victory, he just can't can't go there. And so when he considers his response, even though he immediately doesn't like it, he says, "Okay, I'll think about it about this third option. You know, there's surrender, there's retreating and fighting later, or there's guerrilla warfare." So He's considering his response, and he's thinking, he's just so principled. He's thinking, so what's honorable? What's improper? What's right? And he knows that a guerrilla war would surely destroy the country. And for Lee, that's just too high a price to pay. No matter how much he believed in their cause, and he did, there were limits for him to Southern independence. And uh, he said something once, it was uh, something like, it's better to do right, even if we suffer doing the right thing, than to incur the reproach of our conscience. And so that's foremost for him, doing the right thing. And he weighs honor and glory. You know, he could be this forever hero, but he weighs that against duty and will, and the right thing, and the latter wins out. So he tells his officers, look, you go ahead and go bushwhacking, but the only dignified course for me is to go to Grant and surrender myself. And uh, he doesn't he doesn't do that lightly. He's He says, 
I would rather die a thousand deaths than go and see Grant. But even though he knows he's forever going to be known as a failed revolutionary and the North will consider him an abettor of treason, and he believes that Grant will take him prisoner, knowing all that, he surrenders. And I just think that's remarkable. I don't know of any of any generals today or any person today facing that kind of decision. You've got honor and glory on the one hand, if you just keep fighting and your men will keep fighting for you, even though they're starving and sleep deprived and so many of them are hallucinating, but they just keep going. So he could have continued, but he wants to do the right thing. And that seems like an old fashioned notion today. It's like, what, you think of the right thing? No, you've got to, you know, look at it from a strategy point of view. And you've got to, everything's just so political. And so it's just so refreshing to read about Lee and just know that that was his priority. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted peace. And his name, by Appomattox, he had lost two of his three corps commanders. Richard Yule had been captured. A.P. Hill had been killed. And so his only corps commander there was General Don Longstreet. Most of his staff and lower-ranking officers were adamant to continue the fighting, disperse the army, and let a guerrilla war Mm. continue on. And it was Lee and his uh, common sense and his vision of what that could possibly and potentially do for the Confederate States and the men that he made the decision to surrender. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. It was really his vision. Yeah, his vision. And, And Elaine, when we think of here are two major generals, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, that have been now doggedly fighting for months and months and hoping and wanting this war to be over, to come to the place where they finally meet after 20 years at Appomattox. We we, we wish it, we could have been there to experience that and oh. see that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you look at Ken Burns' <laughs> just fabulous series, I think that does a really, I think it's, what is it, part eight, War is Hell, where this historian is talking about the details about, you know, how Grant was dressed and how Lee was dressed and the little kind of chit chat that they made at the beginning. And um, gosh, to be a fly on that wall, um, Mm -hmm. that's got to be one of the historical events that, that I would Love to have been there. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, Elaine, Robert E. Lee only lives five years after the, the Civil War was over. And a yeah. tremendous amount of Southerners were blaming Ulysses S. Grant for burning Richmond. And Lee was adamant and defending Grant for the rest of his life that no, General Grant did not burn Richmond. Richmond was burning. The fire got out of control. And actually, it was General Grant, the Union Army, that put those fires out. So he was very proactive in defending, as he says, Grant, unfortunately, the remainder of his five years of his life. Yeah, yeah. I know. I um, How remarkable to have 
enemies, quote unquote, and defend each other. I mean, Grant protected Lee from a treason trial also. So, yes, did. you know, both of them, both of them were looking out for each other and they really admired and respected each other. And uh, I love that. And we, again, we think of, here are so many of General Lee's officers begging him to disperse the army and just, we can fight a guerrilla war. And yeah, and not allowing that mentality to permeate his thinking and his level-headedness of ultimately what he did at Appomattox is just astounding. The strength of Robert E. Lee to do that is just astounding. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, he was just so fatherly in uh, in his feelings. He was so tender-hearted and just loved these boys and wanted to do right by them. I mean, he knew that they would keep fighting until, you know, they were dead uh, if Lee would lead them into battle. Um, yeah, but he just, he couldn't do it. He knew he would disappoint them. Uh, he might fall off the pedestal for some of them, but um, yeah, the strength of character uh, was just astonishing. And, and Elaine, we think when Robert E. Lee comes to Appomattox Courthouse, he is surrendering himself to General Ulysses S. Grant, knowing mm-hmm. the potential potential of what could what would be the outcome for him. But he did it for the betterment of his men. I mean, it's just astounding what Lee did at Appomattox. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, absolutely. That's he, he, yeah, he he thinks he's going to be Grant's prisoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's headed to the McLean home, and he's thinking about uh, one of the rebel bushwhackers, the guerrilla fighter. His head was cut off with an axe by revengeful Unionists, and it was mounted atop a telegraph pole. And, you know, he was uh, thinking that his men would be marched off into confinement camps to be prisoners of war. Uh, he knew that, you know, some of the um, rebel leaders had been hanged for treason. Mm-hmm. And so he's thinking of all that and just kind of going like a lamb to the slaughter. And uh, but he does it anyway. And because we, as you said, we from the North have a different perspective of exactly mm-hmm. what was going on there. And yet to try to open that up and dig down past the uh, the top layer and put ourselves, our, my, our northern minds into uh, Robert E. Lee's army and his officers and what he did there is just, it's, it's such a, a deep respect that we have for what Lee did at Appomattox that really began to start to begin to heal the wounds of this awful tragedy called the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. Elaine, we are unfortunately up against time for this segment of our program. Wow, that went so fast. Well, you know, you're giving us a very pertinent and uh, a tremendous amount of information. So we're going to continue this, listeners, in our next program to continue this because there's a lot of questions that I have for Elaine about Appomattox and the, the officers there. So, Elaine, thank you for sharing this. And thank you for... You are so welcome. I mean, this, 
just just but, it just gives us a total different perspective of what was going on there and and the ramifications of it for the short term and long term of our country. So thank you for coming and sharing yeah. this. We appreciate this and we look forward oh, to Oh, thank you for asking me. Well, my Absolutely. privilege. Absolutely. Thank well, you so much. This is, yo, you're welcome. My, our privilege. This is 1180 AM WFYL. We're working for your liberty. <laughs>